Hello, welcome to the Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to find out if we know how they live in Tokyo. But before we do that, Buddy, I want you to tell the folks at home <laughs> what it is we do on this podcast. On this podcast, we talk about games, and we've been talking a lot about games recently. So I guess it's time to go like off on wild tangents again. <laughs> and we're, we're on our third Fast and Furious fra like movie franchise review, right? Fast, the Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift, right? The Probably the most memed on Fast and Furious movie. I, I feel like Tokyo Drift has this, like, meme -y sort of center in, in like, pop culture yeah. consciousness. But also, the, the title alone of Too Fast, Too Furious just being f funny on its face is... Maybe makes it the most memed on Fast and Furious movie. Well, I, I think I think the Fast I think Tokyo Drift is is uh, sorry my my headset is dying so I have to go plug it in. But I think the Fast and the Furious uh, Tokyo Drift is like more recognizable. Um, I think it sure. might actually be like more watched, um, and the song's super recognizable. Um, like I'm gonna say right now that of these of the three movies we've watched so far, Tokyo Drift is by far the best of them. Um, oh yeah, and, absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I guess I was also gonna say like, is there a bigger gap between the fat Tokyo Drift and the other movies? Because it, it it felt like Tokyo like it felt like like when they went with Fast and Furious, it felt like. At least at the time, I remember feeling like it's like, oh, they're doing another one of those. I thought, like, you know, Tokyo Drift was kind of the end of it. Um, but it's only three years after the... It's the same distance between that and Fast Furious as Too Fast and Furious is from Tokyo Drift. So Yeah, so the the story of the Fast and the Furious franchise is very, is very like, weird in this way. The Tokyo Drift was actually sort of envisioned as a... Um, almost like kind of like an episodic side story, right? Like at the time there, it was this understanding that, okay, well we could market the name fast and furious as a street racing car movie. It doesn't necessarily have to tie in with like the lore or like the overall world building. Right. Um, so they hired Justin Lin. They also hired the writer whose name I don't remember, but Justin Lin is obviously, um, the, like the key guy who, who gets brought in at this stage to turn the, the Fast and Furious franchise into what it would eventually become. And they sort of force on Justin Lin in a funny way. They sort of force him at the very, very end of the movie to have a a connector piece, right? With where Dom Toretto, Vin Diesel shows up and he asks about Han because, oh, Han used to run in his crew, right? You know, like there's this there's this cryptic line in the beginning where Han says you know, oh, like, you know, those Western movies, right? You know, those cowboy movies that race into the border. Well, this is my Mexico, right? Um, and the and the implication is that before now, he has run with, you know, like, he has been part of the, the, the Dominic Toretto street racing th vehicle theft crew, right? Um, and... That's cool, and and you know, and like and like that's and that's great or whatever. But it is weird that Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift is at once so far removed from what the Fast and the Furious movies are about, right? Very little world building happens here in the way that we've talked about in some of these previous movies, right? Like you know, the the friendship between Roman and um, 
uh, Brian O'Connor getting kind of set up, even just like aspects of Brian's character and Roman's character in the previous movie, right? Aspects of their interaction with law enforcement, right? Um, that that come from the previous movie with you know the undercover Ava, whatever her name is, Ava Mendez's character. Um, all of the pieces of the world building that come from the very first one, right? The Coronas, the family barbecue. I, I like listed all of this stuff off, right? Like the the house. In, in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. All that stuff is, like, iconic and set in stone. There really isn't anything along those sorts of lines from Tokyo Drift, right? Uh, um, there, there is one thing in that Dominic says that Han was family, and that's basically it. Yeah, true. <laughs> which, my, which is probably the first time he ever said that, actually. Because I don't think he says family, or he refers to them as a, as a family in the first one. And he's only been in this one and the first one so far. Yeah, I also did I don't know if he actually says Hama's family in the movie. Like the the unnamed British sounding Asian guy says to um what's what's the main character's name? The actor is Lucas Black. Um God, I don't remember what his name is. Um the new the new DK. Sean. Sean. Yeah, yes, you're right. Uh so he's the the British Asian guy says to Sean that that the, the this guy says that Han was family. Um, and so, you know, that's just like, you know, part of the, the texture, I guess, of the, uh, but it's it said in a way, like he must've said it before because it said in a way that like this would tip a viewer off to that. This, this is Dominic, right? Like, like, mm. um, like it, it, it said, it said in the way that like, you know, like, you know, like the kind of like wink and nudge at the audience, right? Like, um, so they, they it, like, it's at least established as a, as a theme. Um, but, uh, but the thing that I think is interesting about this, sorry, I have like my overall it, point it. about this is it reminds me of our talk of when we talk about Star Wars, The Last Jedi, and this question comes up of what does it mean to be a Star Wars movie, right? Is it kind of the iconography? Is it, you know, something on a thematic level? Is it the vibes, right? Um, and I feel like Tokyo Drift doesn't have anything to do with Fast and the Furious except for vibes. But it has such hardcore Fast and Furious vibes that it feels truer to the Fast and Furious franchise than the first and second one will, right? Like, when we get later down the line, we're going to get to, like, Fast 5, Fast 6, and you're going to be like, oh, my God, Tokyo Drift is more Fast and Furious than the first Fast and Furious movie is Fast and Furious, <laughs> which I think is hilarious and weird and funny, and I have no idea how to, like really talk about that um besides the fact that it's just like it just operates on a level of raw vibes yeah no i i i, I think that's uh i think that's fair um just kind of in that vein i saw like like i, I almost said that i thought this movie was like so i had heard before that like this this movie in the timeline takes place between what like five and six or something like that uh six and seven six and seven okay and people made comments about, like, the cell phones not being right. And I was like, okay, whatever, beforehand, right? Like, that's like... But, like, there's so much focus on the cell phones in this movie, right? Like, that's like, oh, like, that really is, like, kind of a problem, right? They keep zooming in on these flip cell phones. Um, and, like, it's, like, a very kind of, like, era-appropriate technology. So it, it's... Uh, I guess it's a bigger deal than they made it. But <laughs> I will say, like I said before, that I think this is the best of the three movies so far um, uh, by leaps and bounds. I liked a lot of little things, like... 
one of my favorite things in this movie is that they establish in that opening race in like America that uh, our main character Sean is terrible at cornering, right? Like, oh like, yes, I love this. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like it is. It's not even like he's like, like he is. It's like it is weird. Maybe weird's not the right word, but like him drifting is 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 strange because like he's not even like normal good at cornering he is absolutely terrible at cornering right like he just like literally muscles through corners and like tries to make up for it in raw speed in the in, the, in that uh first race so uh that's uh, that's some good 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 storytelling i think uh i absolutely agree yeah it, it's crazy this happens in the third movie right um because the first two just take it for granted right like their skill as racers is fundamentally established right and there's and there's little things right obviously dom has his muscle car he's like dominic is defined by muscle cars whereas brian is defined by like japanese imports right and so the typical dynamic is that like dom sort of has this like speed and acceleration and muscle car you know just like horsepower energy um whereas uh brian is doing the the crazy you know like you know, Brian is doing like the crazy shit, right? This is not super real. It's not like uh, I like. I don't know that how much they actually think about this, but I do think it it kind of comes through, right? Where like there is a certain amount that you are meant to sort of um, interpret about or like infer about their abilities, you know, as 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 racers uh, based on the kinds of cars that they drive and the kinds of racing that they do. But this is the movie that makes that stuff really explicit because yeah, he is garbage at cornering and it is a real skill that he needs to learn over the course of the movie, which gives it a very straightforward kind of like hero's journey plot structure, right? Where, you know, um he's he's gotta take the time and like and it's funny to me it's hilarious to me, the reverence with which they talk about drifting right like going up into the mountains and han is like oh you, you know like this is where this is where they first learned to drift <laughs> or like he's talking to the girl later and she's like even before we had cars we would just watch we would just watch people drift through these these mountains and it's like she's describing like going to the pond of fireflies where she had her first kiss and it's like but yeah. it's talking about just street japanese street racing right even, even, even the, the, like the, the fisherman on the dock, like you call that drifting? Yeah. <laughs> Is it like the, the old Japanese men that go fishing, or like you know, it's like that culturally you know saturated that like you know, jo old Japanese men on the pier have opinions. <laughs> and it's just like, and, and I think that there's something like inherently funny about it, that absurdity, but also, and this is probably it, right? I'm talking about vibes. I'm talking about why this movie has the right vibes for a Fast and the Furious movie. It's because these Fast and Furious movies are so achingly, heart-wrenchingly sincere, right? Nothing is ever, like, it is always played so fucking straight and so earnestly. And it wants you to care so goddamn much about street racing, right? And I think that's why, and I think that's why, you know, Tokyo Drift actually does sort of just feel like a Fast and Furious movie, and even even some of these later ones, is just because of how reverential everyone is over the kind of art of racing itself. It is not just cool, but it is awe-inspiring. It's almost like a religious thing, right? Um, which I think is fun and hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think it's uh, I think I think it's a super fun movie. I uh, I think I enjoyed it 
like I said, I, I, like it was it was just like a fun watch, right? Like like you said, mm-hmm. like we we so we've been talking about this a little bit with like you know like our last episode about Superman, right? Like I think sincerity is kind of like the pendulum is swinging back towards that in kind of the superhero era. And I think the Fast and Furious franchise is effectively a very sincere superhero movie series, and so it's yep. well positioned to to kind of like take over that niche. So yes, I I, I definitely agree. Um, I also didn't realize like how much like. This feels like, like the the kind of like start starter point for a lot of people's entry into like Japanese culture, right? Like I feel like this sure. movie like burst like a thousand weebs um, in a lot of ways, <laughs> right? Like, like things that like we consider normalish now in like twenty twenty, right? Like um, I think like kind of get filtered through like this, this is like where like um, you know. The our, our kind of like understanding of of Japan like gets like a foothold a lot in the culture like in a way that I didn't realize right because like you know obviously a lot of that comes through anime but there's also a lot of kind of like there's, there's a lot of like you know like I bet you a lot of people know the word gaijin because of this movie which I did not realize yep. right like I like I I basically got that through like you know like memes around anime but like it's not like a word they say in anime because there's usually not gaijin in in it right like um so yeah I, I think it's like an interesting kind of like cultural touchstone from uh from from that perspective i also think that it is an a very authentically japanese movie right like not that this is the tokyo that i grew up in right like when i was living in tokyo like i mean obviously i was still living in in tokyo but people don't really understand tokyo is fucking huge tokyo is gigantic and so like it's kind of like the difference between it's sort of like the difference between if you grow up in like in like Queens in like Forest Hills, you're kind of growing up in the suburbs, right? Versus if you were to grow up in Manhattan, right, which is like a very very sort of urban environment. It's a little bit like that. But anyway, but it is so authentically Japanese in some in so many of these like just like little details, right? Like the the size of his dad's apartment, right? And the way in which like that that's like this very kind of like um sort of hunched claustrophobic space like that's a really authentically japanese thing right or or the school right the way that um uh the school doesn't feature super heavily right but just like the the interactions that he's having around the school taking off you know taking off his his shoes um that kind of like that kind of thing is all like very authentically japanese and i feel like that is something that gets missed a lot in in certain of these other sort of sorts of movies where it's like Basically, it's set in Japan, but sort of a nondescript Japan. Does that make sense? Like, so for instance, yeah. Avengers Endgame reminds me of this. There's this whole bit where Hawkeye is in is in Japan for that movie, but it's really just kind of like using like a little bit of the iconography, and it's not really like authentic, right? Or even you're, you're like even movies that are more heavily set in Japan than that. Um, what is the Pacific Rim sequel called? Pacific Rim Uprising? You know, like half of that movie takes place in Japan, but it doesn't feel like, it's not like that, it feels like it's authentically Tokyo, or it's trying to capture something authentic about what it is like to be, you know, um, a kid growing up in the streets of Tokyo. So it sort of misses, it sort of like misses the mark on on that that level. And I feel like the the translation is is there in Tokyo Drift, which is part of, you know, I don't know, part of what makes it part of what makes it work and part of why it fueled so many so many weaves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um But yeah, no, I I, I absolutely agree with that. Um uh 
Something I actually was curious about, and I don't, I don't know if you know this, but is, is it true that, like, the Tokyo police can't go over 180 kilometers per hour? I don't know, actually, offhand. I mean, certain aspects of that seem true to me um, in the sense of, like, Tokyo police are, I don't know, Tokyo is, like, a very not crime-ridden place, um, and so the like you know you, you you don't you wouldn't expect a big police chase to happen in Tokyo in the same way that you would in the United States I guess is is what I would say um just because I don't know I mean I think some people would say that Jap J Japan has less crime but I also understand that Tokyo and and Japan has a history of sort of underreporting crime in order to appeal that way it was like a it was like a big controversy however many years ago where the police were essentially throwing out legitimate cases because they didn't want to make it look like there were lots there was lots of crime happening um and how that's sort of like a cultural problem inside of japan so i don't know that's like a whole other thing okay so i have i googled this and apparently that used to be kind of true and part of that was because at some point like one of these racing clubs had a gentleman's agreement with the police that, like, they would be, like, safe, but, you know, go fast, right? And so since they had such high standards, the police would kind of look the other way, but that kind of fell apart um, right around the time of this, or, like, a couple of years before this movie happened. So, uh, uh, so you know, I don't know how true that is. That's what it says on Quora, which, you know, is as trustworthy as, as anything else you find on the internet. Um, but that's, uh, that's a, I, I thought that was, like, an interesting idea. That like it felt like such like a specific thing to put in a movie, like to put in the movie to just like like have it, and it's not like it's like a plot point, right? It's not like it's like a Chekhov's gun, right? Like it's just mm -hmm. kind of like an excuse for why they can speed, like why he can speed in that one scene, right? Like because like most of, all the races are like inside parking structures where it's like the emphasis is really on drift or on the mountain where the emphasis is less on raw speed and more on on like you know technical drifting ability, um. And so it's not really a particularly useful. So, so I, it felt like a thing that like had to be true in some regard in order for it to like, um, in order for it to be mentioned. Uh, yeah, uh, but yeah. Um, what else do you want to say about this movie? Uh, what else? So it was interesting to me um, re-watching it and thinking about. Um, The way it sort of like I I so okay something I've something I've talked about in the past is that we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Humans are naturally progressive; we get better at this stuff over time. This is a Star Wars movie in a certain sense. It is a and it is a Star Wars movie that tells that Star Wars plot structure, I think, better than Star Wars does in on a writing level, right? In sense, in the sense of Han as a mentor, right, and Sean as kind of the impetuous like apprentice. But I also kind of forgot that the actor who plays Sean sort of sucks. <laughs> actually, I kind of think everybody sucks in this movie except for two people. Um, number one is the. One Asian guy that is part of DK's crew who has, like, the bleached hair, who I think is gay, maybe? Like, he's, like, the gay street racer? But I don't know. I just love it when he's on screen. He does that. 
he just does like fun things that are hilarious to me like there's this part where like he and sean are arguing and he just like blows sean a kiss and then sean beats him in a race and he like freaks out at his steering wheel and i'm just like yep I don't know why that stuff like connects with me. And then Han, Han is the is like the the main character. Like he is the guy that makes that that holds Tokyo Drift on his back. He is so effortlessly cool and just like like good and like funny. He's just he's just everything, right? Like I feel like the whole movie is just carried on the back of this one character and the actor who, you know, and the actor who plays him. Um and I don't know. Did did you have a similar reaction to Don? Yep, I mean, I think that like I thought I thought Han was a, was, was a great character. Um and I thought he was interesting, right? Like I don't think his like his acting chops are, are there, but I also think that like a lot of the plot of this movie doesn't make a lot of sense, um, which is fine, right? <laughs> like, it's about racing, right? Like, you know, is everything is like, um, like, uh, have if you've ever seen a Pokemon movie, like the way you solve ninety percent of a po- pro- of the problems in a Pokemon movie is Pikachu uses Thunderbolt, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, my favorite example of this is like there are people that are they're they're hungry, right? And like. And uh, I, I remember this is like the first time I heard this, right? So I'm like nine, and like my friend's like, "Look, Pikachu gets solved with Thunderbolt." And literally come across a depowered like hot dog vending machine, and Pikachu uses Thunderbolt, right? I feel like this is like <laughs> the thing in this movie. It's like the solution is always racing, right? It's like this Yakuza mob boss is mad at me. Solution: racing, right? Like, <laughs> um, like in like a way that like the, you know like, nope. Uh, Sean's dad wanted to send him out of the country. And the offer is like, no, I have to take care of this. And he offers to take care of this by offer to race. And if he loses, leave the country. So it's like kind of like, no, there's not my a, favorite. My favorite example of this is actually the very beginning of the movie where he's like, he gets into this fight with the jock, right? right. And the jock throws the baseball through the back of his like, and you can tell that it's like a powerful like muscle car or whatever, but it like looks rickety compared to this guy's like pristine Dodge Viper. And so the jock throws the baseball through the back window, and then Sean gets out and he's like, let's settle this by racing. And then the jock makes the very reasonable point of my car is worth 80 grand. So your he, car is is he, worth nothing. He doesn't say that, though. He pulls out a wrench and it's really like beat his head in. And the girl says, settle it with racing. And yeah. And, and, and then and then the jock says, well, no, I'm not going to do this because my car is worth so much more than your car. There's no reason for me to put that up, essentially. As yeah, because he right? says he only races for pink slips, right? Like, and then she says, says, and she is his girlfriend, yeah. she says, why don't you race for me? And somehow that convinces him because she's already his girlfriend. He already, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why is he putting, why is he risking this? How is that convincing? And then, <laughs> and then in the middle of the race, she gets mad at him. He's like, I thought you loved me. <laughs> and I'm just like, none of this makes any sense. And is so dumb yeah. and stupid. I also- yeah, on, on top of that, like, he 
he blows through a house and causes massive damage. And apparently the cops are like, we won't charge you if you send your son to Tokyo. Right? Like, like yeah. <laughs> Sean is a flight risk. My guy, they fucking got him out of the country. Like it's not presented like he was running from the law. It's presented as like the solution to this problem that is acceptable to the police is they ship him off to Tokyo. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I also just the mechanics of that race bother me for a couple of like there there's a certain amount to the racing that I am willing to sort of suspend my disbelief over, right? We will get to some of this a little bit later down the line as the movies get a little bit more outlandish. Uh but the one that destroys me in this movie, I actually like all of the races. I think everything that happens in Tokyo is actually really great. Um and it like works in a way uh like like it, it feels kind of natural and sort of like endemic to this world or whatever. But that first race kind of makes no fucking sense. I'm sorry. All right, are you coming down? That first race kind of makes no fucking sense. Sean is behind for most of like for most of the race. And then there's this like pickup truck and you understand that these are two souped up street racing cars that are going insanely fast but the pickup truck is also going that fast and it's a pickup truck full of people who are just like hanging out in like the bed of it but like okay i guess maybe you could make an argument that the jock is like trying to you know right, not but- allow sean to to move in or whatever and so he's he's intentionally sort of like keeping the race like slow right but then there are these pieces where where Sean starts driving off road, and you think that that's actually like, like maybe that's a way that he's going to sort of win, is because he's going to be able to break away in the off road section, right, rather than like be be stuck behind the bumper of of the Viper the whole time. But then he pops out of the off road sections, and he's still behind the Viper, and it's like, well, why didn't you just? Why didn't you just drive on the fucking road, dude? Why did you take this like dumb turn and then blow your whole car through like the the you know the foundations of this house, right? Um, and and then he just sort of kind of effortlessly gets ahead, and the guy whose whole thing is his car is really valuable starts smashing into Sean's car. And it's just like all of these things kind of compound to make me go like, who the fuck thought of this like race as an action scene? It doesn't make any sense. Not only that, but just kind of like, you know, on its terms, it's like being like a, what you would suppose would be like a fair race for anybody to like, you know, call it legitimate or whatever. Like, like in the eyes of the contestants, right? One, the pickup truck is blocking... The, the people that they're the, the opponent of the person people they're ostensibly friends with right which doesn't seem like it's fair dealing mm-hmm. right and also like on the other side one of Sean's off-road jaunts is a shortcut it's like literally he's not running the course and he's ta- going a short distance which feels like a violation of terms right like mm-hmm. um, also this seems like an enormous uh, subdivision under construction right for them to be yes. going this long in right like yeah, I mean, famously, any anything in Fast and Furious is, like, insanely long because if they are going as fast as they are going, they are going to try. Like, the climactic, uh, in, in the first movie, right, like, this this big climactic DVD heist of the, of the truck, Vince is hanging off the truck, he's, like, tied to it by this cord or whatever, that takes place over, like, 50 miles because we're assuming that these cars are going insanely fast, right? Um, 
and uh, and it takes forever. The whole the whole thing takes however many minutes to you know to play out in full. And so it's like, oh yeah, well actually, like there is twenty miles of highway where no other cars exist at all. You know, like whatsoever in in like the middle of the California desert, right? Or there's like the famous one, obviously, is the Fast and Furious Six runway thing where there's a the, the the climax of that movie takes place with a plane that's like about to take off and yeah. um and the runway for that plane would have to be like 25 miles long in order to you know because the whole whatever half hour of climax is taking place while while they're driving cars up behind it you know that stuff in a weird way I can uh, I can deal with that stuff better because it is so outlandish that it is sort of easier to accept like it's it's kind of how like if I'm if 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 I'm watching Bugs Bunny because it is more comedy than Young Justice, right? I can kind of accept the cartoon physics of that world, be, or like actually a better version of this might be Teen Titans Go and the original Teen Titans, right? The original Teen Titans has like a little bit more uh, like serious a tone, and so because it is closer to reality, I have less suspension of disbelief for it. Whereas, because Teen Titans Go goes very far into unreality, I'm just really willing to suspend my dis disbelief all the way, you know, all the all the way out. Basically, that's sort of what's happening with these Fast and Furious movies. Is you know, Tokyo Drift is not an, an, an especially realistic movie, but the whole rest of the movie is played so kind of authentically and true to form that the the front half really or the front race really stands out to me as this kind of thing that does not make a lot of sense when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to go back to for a second to the point that like, like, like this is kind of like you know, racing solves everything. You know, drifting is is so important. Like, it feels like th this movie like puts like racing in like it's like like a, like a totalizing thing, right? Like the only other movie that feels like this to me is like Speed Racer, where it's like racing is like so entirely totalizing. Um, it's like like he he goes to Japan. His dad's like, I better not hear about you racing, right? Immediately violates that. And when he comes home, his dad's like, have you been racing? As if, like, you know, he was, like, doing crack or something, right? Like, the same level of, like, he's like, God damn, you've gotten into the cars again. No, my boy. Um, also, like, you know, it's like, you can't do that. At, like, literally no consequences for him, like, totally ignoring his fault. Like, you know, he's like, the next day, he goes back to school and is like, Dad, I've got uh, extracurriculars, and his dad doesn't, like, bat an eyelid or anything, right? Oh, yeah, Dad, I'm going to the Slow Walkers Club. <laughs> uh, the, the, I'm, go I'm going to the Street Racers Police Union headquarters to catch street racers. Come on, like you know, it's just yeah, the no, most like, suspicious I, thing I, you've I ever thought, heard. I, like I thought that we were gonna, they were gonna play it. It's gonna be like he's gonna be like, I've got this delivery job now. I know you said you didn't want me along around cars, but it's me drive cars, and it's me being responsible and getting money. And he just leaves out the part where he's like driving super fast and driving like you know, drug deliveries or whatever for or you know like you know shady yakuza for deliveries. Hun, yeah. Right? No, just kind of like, you know, he he does that and, like, the movie progresses and eventually they show that he's not living at home anymore. Right? Like, that, that's like, that's what they solve, they solve that. The only thing they do is they, like, you know, set up a Chekhov's gun with his dad having a car. 
Right. Which also, right? Like if my if if your son comes to you and you're afraid that he's gonna get hurt and you want to send him out of the country, he's like, one, I need to fix this. It's like, okay, maybe I believe that. But then he comes back to me, he's like, I need to take your car to street race the nephew of a yakuza to like win back my honor. He's like, okay, son, here's the keys. Like <laughs> Not to mention, not to mention the part where, like, he comes and he sh- and he and he sees the dad working on the car, and they kind of have this like nice father bonding, like father father son bonding moment. I just couldn't help but think that, like, if your son has this like problem with street racing, right? Like, he is addicted to street racing, and that is bad. Wouldn't it be bad for you to like? sit there it's it's like if my son is a fucking heroin junkie and then he comes to me one saturday afternoon as i'm polishing my syringe collection and he's like oh are these vintage syringes wow they're beautiful it's like no why would you show him that you know <laughs> yeah, or, and, uh, it's my crack pipe collection <laughs> or like <laughs> Or, like, you know, uh, in the other direction, right? Like, maybe you could channel this into something healthy and you, like, approach, like, you know, like, you introduce it. It's like, oh, we can work on this car together. So it's like, no, it's just like, his happens to walk up while he's working. It's like, oh, you never mentioned you had a car. It's like, nope. Found it on the base. And that's the only thing I'm going to tell you about this. Yeah, it is also, um, you know, like, I do want to I do want to give the movie some credit, right? Planting and payoff is good. Yeah. It is nice to see that executed, right? Uh, it's it is echoing a similar movie or a similar moment in the very first Fast and Furious, right? Dom is working on that muscle car and the and the very final race that he does with um uh with Brian, you know, like the iconic one where he's in that Dodge Charger. This would become Dom's signature vehicle with that big, you know, giant whatever that V8 intake thing on on the thing is, and and he and he does the wheelie up up front because that car has just like such insane horsepower. Um. That's that's cool. That's like that's like a fun kind of connect, yeah. piece of connective tissue. But I do not, in a million fucking years, believe that an American muscle car you built with your dad is going to be a better drift car than DK's specially designed Japanese drift car. <laughs> like, no, well, he put a Nissan engine in it, so that makes that means it's, it's like that. That makes yeah, that that yeah, that that just yeah. makes it makes it all work. Um, it's like it's like at the very be- the, the other thing about the beginning of the movie that I think is hilarious is the car crash Sean gets into right where he flips like eighty times and just walks away from with like. His teeth are bloody, and he has like a little cut on his forehead or whatever. It's like that is an insane car wreck to just kind of be like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm fine." Yeah, I mean, and you know, again, these aren't really criticisms. I don't care yeah. all that much about any of that. It's just like it, it's just like you know, funny to, to to think about and talk about, right? Like, um, yeah, um. What else? There's less NOS in this movie. Although it features pretty prominently, it's like less. I mean, I guess because they're doing less speed, but like you know, there's like they've got like the bike with like the two cans like sitting on like the uh, on the thing, but like and it like shows up, but it's not like as uh, as important. Uh, it, yeah, I and I do like that it is a um, it is not a given. It is sort of like a special feature, you know, sort of. Um, where not every race is about like it feels like in the first movie in the second movie it's it's about like do you use your nos correctly right brian loses his first race to dom because he doesn't 
you know, he, he blows his nos first and Dom says, you know, like too soon or whatever. Um, and, and that's neat. That's, that's cool. I like, I like, I, th I think the, like the nos is, is a neat detail. Um, but, uh, it is better when it is less prominent and it will eventually, I mean, I, I don't know, is this spoilers? It will eventually fall away from the franchise entirely where it basically doesn't even, they don't even have NOS or use NOS anymore. Yeah, I, I feel like that's like a sponsorship thing, right? Like this is like NOS paid for placement in this in this car movie rather than... Oh, the... I never even thought of that. Really? That actually kind of makes, yeah, that actually kind of makes sense. I guess you're right, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that felt very clear to me that, like, you know, this is like a, a product placement. Like, especially in this third movie where it really doesn't have a, a spot to do anything other than just, like, be there to be, like, a thing that they, they point out. Um, but in that kind of line, I actually, I, I really appreciate this movie in being drift-themed. is a lot, like, it, even though, like, like you said, like, I don't necessarily believe that, like, you know, this muscle car can drift as well as the Japanese car. And at least makes it seem more skillful, right? Like most of the race, like most of the racy parts, like races in the in the first two movies are like straightaways. And it feels like, you know, maybe there's some skill there, but it's not like apparent, right? It's like you drive, like it feels like it's very reliant on the equipment and you just drive straight in line. And like, you know, like you said, maybe there's some skill to like when you activate the NOS, but it doesn't feel like, it only feels like it matters because the movie says it does rather than, like, being visible, right? Like, in this movie... Yeah, and it's not like I get the sense that there's these decisions being made yeah. that make these racers so much better than the other ones, right? Whereas you can tell that there are decisions being made in Tokyo Drift that are, like, that are the hallmarks of a good racer. Actually, this is not entirely true. I actually do think that this does show up in Too Fast, Too Furious, and I like that it does. For instance... Brian winning the race that they should lose because he he plays chicken with the other car, right? Um, as the thing that he does to get, you know, to to get to catch up and eventually get an advantage in order to like win this other car, right? Like that's cool, right? Like that that is a fun and interesting and neat decision that gets made. And there's also some other stuff in that movie about like the way the stakes are playing out that also influence this, right? Where you know you have the the the, like the the little laser the, the, it's a completely crazy sci-fi thing it's like a fucking spear gun that like shuts off the car right like having to deal with that stuff in, introduces these sort of like decision making moments whereas in the very first movie there are basically no decision making moments and also the like the physics of the race don't make any sense because like you just sort of expect in a straightaway that you go to your fa you go to your fastest speed as soon as possible right um, and so it seems weird, I guess, to me that like there is even room for, you know, like for any of this, any of this stuff. It's not like they ever walk you through the, the process of, oh, well, you know, I have, this, I have such and such a transmission, which means that I can, I can skip gears, right? Maybe I go from first to third, right? Or, um, you know, I have, a, I have a sixth gear, right? So that when I'm going super, super fast on one of these straightaways, I can really punch it and go, you know, like these are technical details that a real car could have to have an advantage, but like we never deal with any of that stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to, to the movie, to the series credit, right? Like, a lot of that is dealt with, like, by making the races not actually the focus. Like, there is, like, mm. there are very few impactful races for a series that is based around racing, right? Like, that's why I said, like, the racy parts, right? Like, 
You know, like yeah. Race Wars and the initial drag race are like this in the first movie. But like the actual impactful driving scene is the heist. And that has technical mm-hmm. elements to it. But yeah, or a- like or like Brian getting away from the cops, right? Yeah. And picking up Dom and escaping from the cops by driving through this super thin alley, right? Like that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the same is mostly true for uh, the second movie. Um, but that's why I say I like, I like it better. Like, I like this movie basically around like an actual race, right? Like, like I said, the, f- the first two movies, it's not actually about a race. It's about like a plot thing that happens to have fast moving cars in it, right? For the most part. Um, whereas this movie is actually about a race, um, several of them. But like it's a race that happens on a race's turn and is interesting because it's got like interesting race mechanics. Um, you know, it's about drifting. It's rather than about like, you know, like straightaway speed. So, um, uh, I don't know how much that carries forward. It looks like they're, they're very like superhero movie. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, it kind of carries forward more than you might think. Uh, but I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. Um, the, the so, other interesting thing uh, is, what, is the way, oh, I'm sorry. Go for it. Yeah. Just, just a quick question. Like, do these characters show back up post seven? Like I saw, like I I googled Lucas Black just because like I didn't know who the actor was, and like show, said that he's like it says Fast and Furious X, but I I didn't I didn't look too close because I didn't want to spoil myself on anything. If it's a spoiler, then don't tell me. Uh, I guess it's it, I I it, it is not a spoiler to say that yes these characters show back up in you know in yeah. in, in the franchise in the future. Okay. Like I I assume Han shows up at some point. I assume that's like what establishes Oh yeah. yeah. Well so yeah, so the thing that that makes it Han is in the next 3 movies, right? He's in Fast and Furious 4, 5 and 6. Oh really? Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Not not necessarily as a main character, but just like the reason that the time like the the reason that we know the timeline is Tokyo Drift happens after 6 and before seven, right, is because Han is an established member of Dom's crew um, in in four, five, and six. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. With with like and and you know we'll we'll talk about this stuff as 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 we get there. Um, but I the the thing that makes Han interesting to me in Tokyo Drift is he is sort of the the John he's sort of the Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow right just sort of this the guy who sort of whole is is the glue to the whole thing and um just he's a great he's just like a great character he has these great lines you know owning 50% of something is better than 100% of nothing right or you know he has this line about character right which to be fair sort of answers a a a lampshade question which is why the fuck did Han just give this kid his car and then let him wreck it, right? You know, and it's because Sean wa- because he wanted to test Sean's character, right? Um, and Sean would eventually go on and do things that that are legitimately impressive to Han, which is a detail that I I remember I didn't think about or appreciate my first time I watching it, but the second time it really rang true to me, like right, like there's the part where he goes to the the bathhouse. And he has to essentially get money back from, like, the sumo wrestler. And he gets thrown out of the bathhouse, right? But Sean just gets back up and he walks back in, right? And that's the moment, like, and it's, it's stuff like that, right? Where it's like, this is what Han sees in Sean that makes him be like, oh, this is, this is a guy who is special, right? Like, this is the guy who is worthy of kind of my mentor, my mentoring, um, 
and you know and this level of special attention that i'm that i'm giving to him also it's just iconic that he's constantly eating snacks i don't know why but it's just such a great it's like a, a great thing he's just always got a bag of chips like <laughs> makes sense yeah 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 um but uh i think i interrupted you and you you were going to say something uh when i asked about the the future characters did you remember what you were uh, going to go on about No. Well, I, I I don't want to be I don't want to be any more specific than yes, they do they do right. you know come 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 back into the right but, into the franchise. But you were in the middle of you were about to say something when I asked you that question if they were going to Oh, back. I'm sorry. Oh shit. What was I about to say? Fuck. I don't know. That's why I was asking. Uh, uh I don't remember. All right. Well, other thoughts about the movie <laughs> then, I guess. Um cuz like it feels like a very simple movie like structure-wise. Like and it works. But like it feels like there's not like a ton to dig into. Um, with so so the other thing that I want to call out is the CGI and the stunts, uh, which are mostly done by real cars here, which feels good, right? Yeah. Um, there is one. There, there's a couple of moments of of kind of like light CGI. One of which I actually really love, and I think is maybe like the best use. The, the I. I've, I've alluded to this before. The CGI versus realness of the cars is a hot button issue in the Fast and Furious fan base. Like, people really don't like so, some of the movies because they only feature, like, CGI cars, basically. Um, uh, and and the return of real stunt work being done in, in the movies was, like, a big thing that, that kind of happened. We'll talk about this when, when that shows up sort of in, the, in these later films. Um, but there's this moment where DK is drifting in that first, you know, in that first race where he's really owning the shit out of Sean, where it shows how close his bumper gets to the wall. And that moment is really sweet and really slick. And it's just like, yes, Justin Lin gets this shit, right? It's not the CGI fly into the, into the engine, which is fine, but it's like kind of ultimately like sort of worthless, right? Like what, what does that really show us? Why is that, why is that particularly like noteworthy? It's kind of just a little bit cool on a, just like a, you know, if I were to go to the R mechanical gifts subreddit, that stuff is cool um, level, but like it doesn't actually show us anything. Whereas with with this moment, it's like, yeah, dude, this guy is named DK because he is the drift king, <laughs> and like he's really good at this. Which I always, I, I was like, yes, this is this is this is my shit. But um, but I like that the one they're not they're they're playing for keeps with these cars, like they're wrecking the shit out of these cars, right? Like not only is Sean bad at drifting and completely demolishes the first car that he gets from from Han, right? Um, but also the stuff in the in the beginning, right? Like um, the some some of the stuff later on down the line. Obviously, there's like the fiery car crash that kills Han, you know, at the end of the second act, and it's just like they are playing for keeps with these cars, which I really appreciate. And I remember, you know, one of the, one of the first things that somebody ever said to me about Tokyo Drift was how they liked Tokyo Drift because somebody ran a red light and they fucking died. Like they ran a red light, they got plowed by another car and they died for it. And I was like, fuck, yeah, you're right. That's true. Like there's something to the date, just like the ambient danger of it all, right? Um, that that comes across in Tokyo Drift in a way that uh, that doesn't in, in the previous movies because we're using real cars. Those real cars are getting into crashes and those crashes have consequences for the characters. Yeah, I mean, I feel like some of the that that 
that uh, you know run the red light aspect is undercut by like immediately beforehand them like drifting through a crowd of people that happens to part and so they don't hit anybody like that that <laughs> felt that felt like wrong but you know what you know but uh I I think I think I take the uh, I, I take the point I think it makes sense yeah 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 no I, I definitely agree that like the the realism definitely made it feel better although I do, do want to say that that like close cut thing like again this is nitpicky and not really a problem but like I saw I was like that's not impressive that just means he like didn't make the turn as tight as he could have right because if he made the turn tighter it would have been less of a problem right because it's the back wall right like. Oh, I see. Like you would, if the the way to do it would be to show the front wall, right? Yes. Like you are drifting around a corner, like like a pillar or something like that, right? And you just the hair miss it, right? right. Yeah, yeah, Ex exactly, right? Because like that's a tighter turn, right? And like there's no advantage to like being close to the back wall, right? Like at least as far as I can tell. Um, and you could maybe set up a situation where like you know like like the thing that I thought was super impressive, which I which it looked really real, was like drifting all the way up. The uh, the the turny part, right? Like oh yeah, that, yeah yeah, that was super sick, right? Like that that felt like that that felt like both skillful and and useful in in terms of the race mechanics, right? Like so, and the way that I also like the way that they drift in a like convoy, right? Like there's the part where she's where he's driving with the girl, the the Australian girl, and they're drifting through the mountains, and they're part of this big, you know, like team of people who are all drifting in unison and it's like it's it's almost like uh it was like it was like synchronized swimming or something you know like yeah. there was like a dance or like a grace to it that that is kind of impressive and that i liked a lot yeah i mean that also felt like it was part of like this like weird magical realism aspect where like everyone <laughs> yeah, in tokyo yeah, yeah, yeah. Count, cares about like racing right like um <laughs> Like, the only way it could have been, like, more on the nose is if they were drifting down Mount Fuji, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> with, with cherry blossom petals <laughs> drifting down. <laughs> oh, my God. That's funny. That's, that's, <laughs> that's funny. Well, I'm glad to hear that you actually like this one because people say it's the fucking worst one, and I hate them for it. They are dumb idiots because it is great, and I yeah, love it. <laughs> like, it's the least, like, kind of, like, connected of them, but it's definitely not. Like, it is definitely better than the previous two. And, like, I think basically in every way that isn't, like, you know, world building and character development, right? Like, Yeah, like, I think that's really what people – people say Tokyo Drift is bad because – like I said, everybody except for fucking Han is kind of a bad actor in this movie. Um, like, nobody, like, I, I, I care a little bit about Sean, right? Like, I care the minimum amount about Sean, but I care much more about Brian O'Connor and Dominic Toretto because, like, these guys have real chemistry in the first one, right? Or even just, like, Brian and Roman in the second one, right? Like, they have real chemistry. Even just a bit character like Tej in the second one has all of this extra kind of life and texture to him uh, that that I like much more than basically anybody in Tokyo Drift except for these two two guys that I mentioned. The, you know, like the, the blonde-haired guy and... Um, and Han, and I feel like when people are complaining about Tokyo Drift, they're kind of complaining on that level, and I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna quibble. Yeah. But just on every other level, it's so much better than the first two movies. Like it's kind of insane. Yeah. No, I uh, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Uh, did you have anything else you want to talk about this movie, or should we uh, move on? No, to our weeks? I guess we I guess we clipped it. Yeah, and we have a lot of stuff to talk about in the back half, right? Yeah. Uh, or a bunch of different things. Uh, mm -hmm. At least I I have some. 
Uh, first thing I want to do is I'm going to leave frame for a second, but I was at uh, Walmart earlier and I got the Coca-Cola Zero Dream Edition as uh, as as Coke aficionados. I figured I'd do a live uh, live taste and live <laughs> react. I have seen Coke Dream, but I have not seen Coke Zero Dream. I did not know that yep. they made it with Coke Zero. Uh, it's Dream World Limited Edition, and it is Dream. It says it's a uh, Dream flavored. I don't know if I'm actually reversed <laughs> on this or not, but uh, bottoms up. <laughs> I don't think I'm a fan of that. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. That some derps talk about games. <laughs> Do not endorse Coke Zero Dream World Edition. Yeah, so I've I've had the the like Stardust Edition, and I've had like the Marshmallow Edition. The Marshmallow Edition, confusingly, is watermelon flavored. Um, and yeah, right, because it's Marshmallow the artist, not like the flavor. No, sure, but you would think yeah. that. Wow, whatever. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. Um, I like <laughs> like this like the like the astral or star edition tastes like cinnamony and like spice like it tastes almost like Christmassy and I like that didn't like marshmallow don't like this it tastes like some sort of fruity like almost like uh, like maybe a cherryish flavor but like not like a like almost like in a menacing way I don't know. <laughs> Gross. not a, not not a fan of this but uh, you know. So that's that's the, the, the live live review of uh, Coke Zero. Uh, like so, like I will say that this is not so bad that I won't drink the rest of them because um, I got like a, a ten pack of these mini cans. But like like the marshmallow one, I would not drink a second can of that. Um, so you know, there's your uh, there's your there's your rating. But I need to, I need, I've been getting all of my sodas off of, out of uh, Costco recently. Okay, yeah, and. Um, and I hate it. I want to go back to getting the six packs, even though it's so much more expensive. Or not the six packs, the 12 packs, right? Like I, what I used to do was I would go get nine 12 packs and that would last like a month, right? Um, but it meant that I could I could filter through a bunch of different flavors, right? Yeah. Um, which, which is mostly what I'm looking for. Like a lot of the time I'm looking for that variety. Um, but like once I realized that it would be like half as much money to get twice as much you know, from the the giant pallets at Costco, I was like, "Well, I should just get these giant fucking pallets, right?" Um, but obviously, they only make the, the giant pallets. It's like Coke Zero, Diet Coke, Diet Pepsi, Diet Dr Pepper, right? Like that's all you. That's all the options you have if you're a diet soda drinker. Um, and so, so yeah, I have just been living that bland, not like because I, you know, I always loved like the mango or like the you know Coke Zero vanilla or whatever, right? Like. Those were those were always my favorite. So I, I will say that if you keep your eyes peeled on like store brochures, you can you can sometimes like if there's other things on sale, then I think that like BJ's or Costco is the best price. Although the price has gone up pretty significantly, um, I think due to inflation, right? Like I I remember, mm -hmm. and obviously this is this might vary regionally, but like uh, a couple of years ago it was going for like twelve fifty for a thirty five pack, and now it's going for like seventeen fifty. Um, but sometimes, like the grocery stores will be like, buy two get one free, mix and match, um, and so those that's an opportunity to put some uh, variation in there if you want. Um, pro shopping tips for uh, for Coke fiends out there, um, Coca Cola fiends, I guess I should specify. Uh, uh, but <laughs> Coke fiends. <laughs> mm. So uh, so yeah, um, 
Uh, now that we're out, we're done with that. How was how was your week? Oh boy, how is my week? Well, I have finally done it. I have finally beaten uh, two campaigns so far in Total War Warhammer Three. Um, I have beaten my Skaven campaign on Deathmaster Snickich and or Snickich. Uh, and I have beaten the Scarsnick Greenskins campaign um, by completing first the short con- the, the the short victory, then the long victory, then the ultimate victory, right? Which is defeating kind of the end game threat of like you know I like the vampire counts spawning just a million armies and going to war with uh, with fucking everybody. Um, the I don't know why the late game of these strategy games always gets out of control and loses its luster. And I sort of don't know why or how to deal with that. And I sort of wonder if there's any strategy game that I would say like, oh, the late game of this strategy game. I feel like most strategy games are mo- are, the- are at their most fun in the early and mid game, right? Um, some with different contours, right? Like I was talking about how Stellaris, I- or Stellaris has a really good mid game experience, right? Where you've kind of defined your borders, you know, you have your kind of core planets, but now you're just like ramping up your optimization engine and kind of like kicking that whole thing sort of like into gear, right? By contrast, I sort of think Total War has a really good early game. I think the first like 50 to 75 turns of any Total War game are really fun and engaging right this is like where you know you're at war from a bunch of different sides you probably only have one or maybe two armies money is really you know like really precarious you're not just swimming in gold right like faster than you could ever sort of like spend it down or at least like you know um you you have to think about it and sort of uh, and and make like decisions about it in a way that is more like complex uh, than you might than you might otherwise be thinking about and making and making these sorts of decisions. Having premium units is actually kind of tougher to get. You know, you have to you have to make choices about like oh well, what buildings am I going to build first in order to like unlock some of these higher tier units? Right, like their upkeep is really expensive. Am I willing to take on you know? this this elite set of armored infantry or would i rather get two units of cheaper infantry in in its place right like all of that stuff is is kind of happening in like these total war early games um but once you've sort of kind of set out and you you've kind of crested into the mid game you have a pretty solid set of territory that is well defended right you've you've built your garrison buildings and all of your stuff if anything happens you have an army nearby that you could kind of respond to that with or you could raise an army without too much like without too much issue that's where things kind of like start to sort of like come down and then eventually you get into the late game where it's like you know in the snickage campaign i had 70 settlements you know i had two dozen provinces many of which were completely capped in terms of how much like gold i was generating i was pretty much able to generate armies on the fly and i was just sort of like um I was just sort of like moving through everything without too much issue. Um, And it's just like, I wish there was a better way to make that experience kind of deeply compelling uh, than just, uh, you know, I spawn a million guys. Maybe, I think part of it is that maybe I'm actually, I think I'm really good with Skaven. I think like Wood Elves are my favorite faction, but it's just like, I'm, I'm, really good at at Skaven campaigns. I feel like I like Skaven a lot. Skaven are uh, they're just very well suited to the kinds of 
I don't know, the kinds of strategies that I end up employing. Um, and, uh, because like when I think about some of my other campaigns, like when I think about that Skarsnik campaign, that one actually was more fun. And it had a lot to do with the contours of the differences between Greenskins and Skaven, because Greenskins are um Greenskins have cheaper armies overall, so you can field more of them, but the units suck, right? Like if you if you take twenty units, if you take a stack of greenskins up against a stack of high elves, right? assuming you both both empires are in a pretty strong spot and you can kind of field whatever units you want the high elves are going to kick the shit out of the greenskins every fucking time right um which actually sort of makes things interesting because you you have more armies on the map and you can kind of cover more ground with them one of the things that was neat about my scarcity campaign is i ex expanded insanely quickly just because it didn't take all that long to to boot up a second army and start pillaging right um also the other thing about skaven and greenskins that's neat is that their economies are sack and loot based rather than sort of economic center based right greenskin settlements don't make a lot of money um having a lot of settlements is not actually going to give you a like a like a ton of cash flow but they have huge bonuses to sacking enemy cities right so if you walk up to a really really high tier enemy city and you sack that thing it's going to give you like 75,000 gold right but if you do that on the empire you're never you're never going to get that much money right the empire is is a faction that is built to you know you or like dwarfs are a better example of this you create a strong economic base in your like in your home cities and those are going to fuel most of your economy kind of moving forward, right? Like going forward. Um, and maybe that has like a, maybe that has kind of like a piece to do with it. And when I start playing dwarfs or vampire counts or, you know, just any of these slower, um, like less, uh, explosive gold generating factions i'll probably think a little bit differently about this stuff um but yeah like it, it, maybe maybe it just has to do with like with playing these skaven um i am definitely in in the ending paces of a lot of these other campaigns but it's just a matter of like actually filling out the victory conditions some of which are easy and some of which are hard the warriors of chaos victory conditions are actually fucking insane and i have no idea how i am going to to complete that in any anything less than another 150 turns um even though these warriors of chaos the warriors of chaos actually probably have the best single stack out of any army like chosen are monsters they are just monsters to field a unit of chosen they are going to like kick the shit out of everything else in the battlefield um but that expense means that you're kind of in the opposite field of of skaven where you you need a you have a lot of territory in order to field like four armies and those armies are going to be able to like one V three and you're going to be able to get these insanely crazy heroic victories or whatever. Um, but if you are in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're, you're just leaving all of your cities out there to get sacked over and over and over again, which is, which is not fun and not great. Anyway, that's my weekly total war Warhammer three update. Uh, I'm sure I will play much more of it and we'll talk much more of it in the not too distant future. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna say it feels like a lot of strategy games have this problem where, like, at a certain point, you are like, it's like what's gonna happen is a foregone conclusion, and you need to kind of like, just like execute on that, and it feels kind of like a drag to kind of like get through all of that. Um. Uh. So yeah, I, I, I think I think that's like a kind of universal problem. The only solution I've ever seen to that is like playing multiplayer. Um, yeah. Um. And even then, sometimes you get into that position at which point you just kind of give up. 
and that's like you know uh, at least a short yeah because like one person is clearly better yeah. you know, like it's just far and away yeah 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 I, the, I i think the end game scenarios are probably the correct way to do it like one of the things that's nice about the end game scenarios as they played out in my uh, warriors of chaos campaign which are i got the vampire end game scenario the the vampires are right next to me right and they immediately declare war on you and they're just like constantly fucking like fucking you up and i think that is generating better ba like better more interesting battles right where i have three huge stacks of like vampire counts armies they are besieging a settlement of mine right with 40 with like 40 units in it and i'm just having this huge blowout 40 units versus 60 units uh city battle playing like playing out like that that feels great but when it was with um with snickich so with De deathmaster snitch it was the sentinels uh the like the black period of of the gatchers of the tomb kings right sort of in in the southlands kind of their africa and my power base was in cathay which is Although, you know, like halfway across the map from that. And it's just like when the endgame scenario triggered, I was nowhere near there, right? And by the time I actually was getting armies there, because I did have to defeat, you know, like we have you have to defeat the faction, you have to capture the the, the Black Pyramid of Nagash in order to put an end to um uh in order to put an end to the you know the the endgame scenario. Uh, they were already basically contained by the uh, the rest of the AI, right? Because you know when when these endgame scenarios spawn, they declare war at everybody like unconditionally. You can't you cannot be at peace with them, right? Um, and so that was just kind of like a less interesting, less sort of compelling version of events because uh, I I just wasn't I just wasn't close. to close enough to actually be dealing with any of these armies kind of as they, you know, like as they spawned. I never had to do the thing where, okay, I'm going to muster the majority of my forces to sort of beat back this onslaught and contain them and, you know, shut them down so that, so that they don't go crazy and, and spread vampire corruption all over the place. So I don't know, maybe that, maybe that's something. The end game scenarios are definitely better than the old one, which was just an invasion of chaos. That was mostly annoying more than anything else. Um, and I am excited to see the implementation of newer, more interesting versions of endgame scenarios for other races in the future. Very cool. Um, on my end, another thing I did is I watched the movie Barbarian, uh, which is a horror film. Um, uh, is I have seen a bunch of people being like, oh, you should watch this movie without reading anything about it, uh, which is what I did. Um, and it's interesting. It's got, it got like a, a few interesting, like, twists and turn to it, but it felt mostly like empty calories to me. Um, like if you want to see something that's like kind of scary and fucked up, I say, go see it. But like, I also think it like, it wants to like say some stuff. I, and I don't want to put too much spoilers out there, but like, it want, I feel like it wants to say something, but it doesn't end up saying like, it doesn't, it doesn't end up saying anything interesting. It's just kind of like, you know, a, a horror movie that is, that is, that is spooky, spooky. So, um, again, I don't want to spoil it too much, but I, you know, uh, that's, that's my, my thoughts on it. Um, another thing to go into very briefly is, uh, so, uh, I mentioned that I was watching the Great British Bake Off with, uh, my girlfriend and we finished the fifth season, but the 10th season has just started. And, uh, as of last weekend, uh, when I watched it, there were like two episodes out. So we started watching that. Um, and it's, it's still delightful. Still a lot of fun. 
although it feels like they're starting to run out of things to do. Um, like the final challenge in the second episode of this season was like bake a mask um, and the mask has to be freestanding. Um, and it's got like a lot of creative expression to it, but um, it's like feels like not like a kind of realistic thing to do. I also think it is interesting. Uh, yeah, Salu in the chat says biscuit mask. Yes, it is a mask made out of cookies. Um, you know, it's, it's biscuit okay. week. Okay. Um, uh, but like, I, I feel like it's, I feel like you might have some opinions on this too, but like, so the, the structure of the show is the first, first challenge is a signature, then there's a technical, and then there's a showstopper. The showstopper, this is what the biscuit mask was. It's like this like big all out thing, but the middle one, the technical challenge, um, it's the one that the only one the contestants don't get to prepare for ahead of time and it's judged blind. Um, and I often find myself being like. This, this technical challenge is like, you know, it's nonsense, right? Like, it's like, like, it'll be like something that like, you know, no one's heard of, but like two of them did and they end up winning. It's like, well, yeah, they, of course they fucking won this. Cause like, you know, they knew like the first episode of this season was like a red velvet <laughs> cake. And it's like, and it's like two of the contestants were like, you know, I've like, one of them was like, this is the, the red velvet cake is the first thing I ever made. And the other one was like, I love red velvet cake. Right. And they ended up taking first second place. It's like. This doesn't seem like, and but then like, and also like the part of it is that like they don't give a ton of clear instructions on like what to do, right? Sure. Like in the second episode, um, they had to make these like cookie bars, but one of the instructions was like feather the white chocolate, right? Like, and so two of the contestants just like didn't understand what that meant and they made white chocolate feathers. And they looked cool, but like it wasn't the right thing. So they ended up coming in the bottom. And it's like, this feels like a bad, like badly written, like a rule system. Um, loosen the trap, make the batter, <laughs> bake it in the oven, right? And, like, I get some of that, right? Like, you know, like, you're supposed to, like, as a baker, you should know how long this, like, cake, this sponge is, is uh, takes to, like, you know, given given that you're an experienced baker, you should be able to, to figure out how much that takes. That makes sense to me, right? But, like, one of the challenges from the fifth season, it was this particular type of pie, and it goes to this particular type of pie dish, and the pie dish has, like, this big rim on it, and the pie is supposed to go all the way out to the edge, but, like, that's not a thing you know from being an experienced baker. That's just, like, a thing, right? Like, that's just, like, a thing that, like, it's a binary thing where you know or you don't know the knowledge. And that, that feels, like, unfair to me. But, like, otherwise, I think it's a fun show. I finally understand, like, the 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 uh, appeal of reality shows, right? Like, I've got the people I'm rooting for and the people I think are, like... The the, the thing that I am told is unique about the Great British Bake Off is, like, there's rarely a person that you, like... People are rarely nasty, so there's rarely a person that you hate. There's maybe people that are less skillful than others, so... Um, and I like baking, so I thought it, I thought it was interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Lou in chat says feathering is a fairly common baking turn if you at least if you watch the Bake Off. The other thing that like felt a little off to me is the two people that screwed it up were clearly like people like one was like a Malaysian woman, one was like a Saudi Arabian dude. So it's like people who like clearly English isn't their first language, and so like the like the the lack of knowledge here feels like much more unfair than than usual. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so th those were like the two the two big shows. Uh, otherwise, um, what did I do this? I I, I played more Rumbleverse. Um, still super fun. I also played the Call of Duty uh, beta, which feels like Call of Duty. I might buy that game just because sometimes I just like to sit down and shoot people with uh, with a Call of Duty gun and play the Call of Duty gameplay and do the Call of Duty thing. Um, it is very Call of Duty. Um. I don't know. I don't have deeper thoughts than that. 
Uh, <laughs> what 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 Call of Duty are we on right now? So I guess I can check in. My no, 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 don't. So we are on Modern Warfare Two. This is at least the second Modern Warfare Two, because Modern Warfare Two came out when we were in like like in yeah, college. That was like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that like this is another. This is a new Modern Warfare Two. Um, I don't know the genealogy, but yeah, it, it is. It is not re-release, right? It is a new game called Modern Warfare Two. And it just came out, or uh, it the, has been out for a while. The beta just happened last weekend. Uh, it's not. Okay. It's not quite right. out yet. I do remember hearing that um, the new War Zone is is like amazing. People's people on Twitter said the new War Zone map is the shit or something. Okay. Um, I did not tip my toes in War Zone. Like War Zone two is a thing. Um, this is so. This is like the thing about War Zone. This is interesting, like, from a meta, like, like it's kind of like a meta, like, price model perspective. Warzone is free, but it is hard to level up your weapons. Um, like, because, like, the, the Warzone, Warzone doesn't use, like, you know, a traditional PUBG system where, like, you pick up stuff off the uh, off the ground. Or you can, but, like, you know, there's, like, certain sets of blueprints. The more common thing, like, the, the kind of, like, the base objective of any Warzone game is you call on a crate. Or you find a crate, or you get a pick up a crate, and you pull out one of your your nicely customized loadouts, right? Um, the thing that's weird about this about uh, Warzone uh, is that you can't really level like if you're playing just Warzone, it's very hard to kind of like level up your weapons because you can't really control what you're playing with, and so the kind of dynamic is that um, you buy the game and then you play like normal multiplayer matches to level up your weapons and that like helps you fill out your Warzone um, drops. Um, which I had, I have had someone, I think, as friend of the cast X, I think somewhat facetiously called it pay to win um, because like you have to basically buy the actual game in order to level up the weapons in a, in a way that's like not super roundabout. And I don't know if I'd call that pay to win, but it is kind of like, it, 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 it's an interesting question, right? Because, like, you could play... You know, okay, so this this interacts with another question that I think is sort of interesting, which is the how fair is it to ask one type of player to play another type of content? And I've defended this in the past. I'm thinking WoW terms, right? I've defended this in the past because raiders, right? Like, let's say you play WoW because you, you like raiding or you like Mythic Plus, your, your PvP or whatever, right? There are mechanics that WoW has that, like you have to play the story basically right like in order in 9.2 for instance in order to get the double legendary belt you have to play through the Zareth Mortis campaign all the way through right so you are essentially taking these these like raiding players and funneling them through sort of this other this alternate game mode the narrative game mode for for wow right which is not the thing that they're interested in not the thing that they like play the game for in order to get the reward that they want that they can take back to like that they can take back to rating and the question is is that a fair thing to do and on the in, in the past on the podcast i have said yes and for the simple reason of People also want the world of Warcraft to be populated by players. They do not want it to be a, a lobby game, and they want to include reasons for players to go and do open world content so that there are open there are a lot of players out in the open world for you to interact with, right? One of the ways that you do that is you say, hey, if you are a raider, here is some content that takes a couple of hours to get, but it's pretty trivial, you know, like pretty trivially easy to do so. Come hang out with, you know, like 
It's 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 like your mom telling your you telling your older brother that they have to go hang out with their younger brother for an hour, you know, or whatever. Something something kind of along those sorts of lines. And I think it's a little weird um that the game is sort of asking a Warzone player to go play deathmatch right in order to level up the guns especially in the way that that sounds because it sounds like it's a huge grind is that is that the case yeah is it no, a huge grind? So, so that this is actually like the this is like the appeal of modern call of duty right that started back with like the original modern warfare 2 right it's like you know you are you the thing the reason you keep playing is you keep unlocking things right like that's like the it's like the beginning of like rpg mechanics and everything right like it's like what kind of like gives you drive to keep playing is like you keep unlocking stuff you keep unlocking like new ways to play and like new uh, uh modifications for your guns and whatnot um and so i agree with you like it's a huge grind and not only is it a huge grind but like i said in war it is hard to target a particular weapon in warzone because you have to find it on the ground and then go use it right like this would be like um in order to like unlock a scope in you know in apex right like you would have to go like find the weapon on the ground and then get a number of kills with it, which is, like, a hard thing to do in the first place, right? Like, um, and on top of that, like, like, on top of that, you have to go buy the base game in order to, to effectively do that, right? Like, which is, which is, like, the, the, the price point thing, which I don't think is too bad, but it is kind of, like, eh, right? Like, um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how to feel about it, especially because, like, Warzone's, like, a separate executable, right? Like, it is a different tab on the Blizzard launcher, um, yeah, that's also true. Yeah, that's that is weird. That is that is really weird. It, it's also interesting. Like, uh, have you heard about the Overwatch Two Battle Pass controversy? Uh, the the that the heroes are unlockable on the Battle Pass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so the 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 brief history of this controversy is that like some one dev mentioned on Twitter just happened like or like in an inter interview or something mentioned that um, you know you there there's one hero that's coming. Two heroes, actually, that are coming immediately, right? You've got Sojourn, and you've got um, uh, the Junker Queen, who are both sort of just immediately playable, right? But the third hero, that like the third new character in Overwatch, Kiriko, um, is on the battle pass, right? She's about halfway through, you know, like halfway through the battle pass or whatever. And... Once people heard this, they said the bat. This is bullshit because it makes the battle pass mandatory. To which I was, I was a little confused by this. And I was like, okay, what's what's the logic here? And it turns out that the logic is that Overwatch is a game of picking and counterpicking, right? Which is to say that I, you know, I'm going to be playing my my hero, right? And if I have a good opportunity to counterpick the enemy team, I am going to swap to a different hero to do that, basically, right? Um, and not having access to every hero in the game for this, you know, like uh, for that reason, is bad because it means that you you aren't going to have the option to counterpick something but someone else might have the option to counterpick you right if i am a if i am a battle pass player who has bought the battle pass and leveled it up faster it, kiriko is free by the way but if i'm a battle pass player who has bought the battle pass and leveled it up faster than 
you know, than you on the battle pass. I have the op I have this uh, gameplay option that you do not have, and therefore, and therefore, I win. Uh, Blizzard has since defended their decision, which I sort of didn't expect. I thought they were going to cave. They have defended their their decision by saying the argument that I made on this co podcast like two or three weeks ago when this controversy first broke, which is that realistically nobody really plays Overwatch that way, right? Like the the way that you play Overwatch is you have a couple of characters who you are good at, and if you get really hard counterpicked, you swap to another one of your mains, right? I am good at Soldier 76, I'm good at Reaper, I'm good at Farah. If somebody, if I'm playing Farah and somebody counterpicks Farah, I'll swap to Soldier, right? Or if somebody counterpicks Soldier, I'll swap to Reaper, right? You know, like that kind of a thing. Very rarely am I going to counterpick into a, a hero I don't play in order to get, you know, like in order to, to, to like beat the enemy team, right? It's not like I see the enemy team has X, Y, and Z and I play, you know, some hero that's not on my mains list in order to like to go to go counter them. That's the first argument that Blizzard made. And the second argument that Blizzard made, which is very different, is heroes are the most exciting content in, you know, in over like in Overwatch. And they want people to have something exciting to build towards, right? You know, there is a good reason to level up the battle pass because there's a reward that I care about on the battle pass, right? And it's just like I we've we've talked so much about battle passes recently, and I don't know where where my thoughts feel like fall on something like this, where it's like, is it fair to sort of withhold something in a way, right? To put it on the battle pass just to give you a good reason to to do the battle pass doesn't that like does that feel bad? Yes, but also, I I don't know like it's just like a it's a complicated question. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. Um, I don't know I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I know I don't also don't really play Overwatch, but so. I don't know. It feels it feels interesting because, like you know, it is, it is a competitive game, right? Like so, like yeah, like a Apex, you know, has they're not on the battle pass, but it has like the characters that are locked. But like, it's not so much counter. It's not a counter picking game, right? Um, and like the other comp comparison, maybe be League of Legends, which has I think it just has enough legends that like like characters don't really counter pick each other. They counter pick like large swaths of of like like you know they they counter pick archetypes essentially. Um, you also can't switch, right? Yeah, you, know, yeah. you are locked in from the beginning of the game. Whereas right, in right. Overwatch, hero swapping is like a, a mechanic that you can engage right, with. Right, right. Um, also, there I think there's like I think part of it is that like the hero pool is is smaller in Overwatch, um, and like I I think there's also this kind of thought that like newer stuff tends to be like overtuned. Right, like this, this happens all the time in like fighting games. It's like, oh, DLC, DLC player means that you're bad because you're picking the broken character or whatever, which is like a scrubby thing to say. But like, I think there is like some sense yeah. that like, like this happens like maybe not on purpose, but it's like either you're overtuning it to make like you know, the conspiracy is that they're overtuned so that like people will buy the DLC, but like sometimes it's just because like the mechanics are unique and it re re interact in a way that the devs didn't anticipate or whatever, right? Um, I think you also yep. see that, like undertuned characters happen this way as well, which uh, makes me think generally it's not a conspiracy. It's just kind of like it's hard to anticipate everything. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's uh, I don't know how I feel about it. I my 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 instinct is to say that like it's not a huge deal, but like I get why pe people are aggravated. Um, I don't know. I don't I don't, I don't have any deeper thoughts than that. Okay. 
Wow. Uh, something else I wanted to talk about, something else I wanted to bring up, maybe rant about a little bit, is um, the new indie game publishing label called Big Mode Games. Uh, which is which was announced by Dunkey, video game Dunkey, the you know famous YouTuber last week. Um, Big Mode Games is his indie game publishing label that he announced via his YouTube channel um, with a five minute video, sort of that's uh, you know that's a that's a, a a spirited sales pitch for you know essentially how much he cares about games and how much he wants to bring you know great games to as many people as possible. This got resoundingly dunked on on Twitter. Uh, I, I got in a little bit. on. So the way that I described this was cringe because the confidence of Dunkey's video paired with the cluelessness displayed by that video was eye-opening to me. And I don't know what else to do besides talk about it on my podcast that no one fucking listens to. Um Anyway, you so you've seen this. So you so you've seen the news but you have not seen the video. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. That is Okay. Correct. Okay, so to explain the thing that makes it so cringe. Like okay, the 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 thing that I said was was talking about contrapoints. Contrapoints made a whole like 2-hour YouTube video about cringe and part of what she's doing in that video is talking about like what what is cringe? Why why is cringe a thing? And and the thing that makes cringe happen is you have the pairing of like Unending confidence with also like naivety or cluelessness, right? You know, it is someone like the the definition of cringe is someone who goes on American Idol and they say that they sound like Freddie Mercury and then they sing their song and they sound like an ostrich that is giving birth. You know what I mean? It's just like, how on earth do you say that you sound like one of the best like rock singers of all time, right? And then also sound like this. Do you not hear yourself? This is cringeworthy. This is what this is what cringe is. And the thing that makes Dunkey's video so so cringy is he has this he has this assertion, which is that the dedication of his channel is to kind of throw shameless corporate cash grabs into the trash, right? And seek out and uplift the truly great, like, gems of indie games that, you know, he thinks his audience ought to be aware of. Now, Mango, I want to just... Here's 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 a list of some of the games that Dunkey, that Dunkey thinks he has lifted up, that he has brought to his channel, right... Uh, because he wants to help the the best game succeed, Ori and the Will of the Wisps, Spelunky, uh, Hades, uh, we've got Undertale in there, you know Rocket League, big one, <laughs> and it's just like he he's listing off like inscription, he's just listing off a bunch of indie games that, to be fair, are great indie games, right? No one is going to walk into this. I haven't even played it. Nobody's going to walk into this and say that Hades is not a great indie game, right? But they're like indie you, darlings, right? Like, yeah, this, it, yeah, and it, it is like, it. it uh, well, part of this is that I work in indies. Ori is published by Microsoft, right? I know, I know. This is what fucking destroys me. Rocket League is owned by Epic, you know, <laughs> like, you know. Oh my god, and, and all, like, first of all, most of these games have publishers. Second of all, 
the the degree to which some of these games are indies is sort of like a question. I wouldn't even say Rocket League is an indie game at this point. Like I'm, maybe if maybe I'm, in its very first days, sure. But it's like uh, to be very fair, it was a while before they got acquired by Epic, right? Like they're like true, sure. Like they, they were a phenomenon in their own right mm-hmm. before before it turned around, right? But yes. Um. And the thing, and the thing that's crazy about this, and I know that this is because I work in indie, in like, in like indie games. I have spent the last three years working at an indie game publisher, right? Right now, I'm a marketing lead at an indie game publisher. I've shipped a dozen games, right, for this, you know, like for this company. So I, I, I know what I'm talking about a little bit. The thing that does not, def- you, like, the thing that does not define an indie game publisher is the home runs if this makes sense, right? Indie game publishing is not about home runs. I feel like I'm playing Moneyball, right? Or like I'm watching Moneyball right now. It is not about the guy, like the game that gets that, that gets up to bat and knocks it out of the park because those indie, like there is one or two of those a year, maybe, you know what I mean? And you've got dozens of indie game publishers. You've got hundreds of indie game developers, right? Like, you are not going to build a successful publishing company if you are comparing, if you are saying, I'm going to bring the next great indie game like Undertale to, like, to you. It's like, no, you can't fucking promise that. Every game that anyone ever signs has the hope to be the home run, but the reason that an indie game publisher is successful is because they're base hits, right? You know, because, like, Donkey never fucking played Grime. Right, he doesn't. He doesn't know what Grime is, but Grime is a very successful title because you know it's a Souls-like Metroidvania. It appealed to that audience in a in a reasonable way. It was a relatively cheap. Like this is the thing, indie, indie games are low overhead, right? Because you don't you're, you're you're the development team is like five people, right? You don't have to you don't have to put millions of dollars into that, right? Which means that you don't have to sell millions of copies, right? You can an indie game of yours can sell for fifty thousand copies and that can be a huge profit win for you even if it isn't necessarily like a gigantic insane hollow knight windfall right like hollow knight has probably made 20 30 million dollars or something because of just like the insane amount of sales that 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 game has generated with the fact that it was developed by a very small australian company or whatever right you, you don't have to live in that world. And if you're an indie game publishing company, you don't live or die by, like, comparing your games to Undertale. If any indie game publisher had had the option to publish Hades, they would have. But the point is, Hades was made by a developer that had this proven track record that had a gazillion dollars because Bastion sold like crazy, right? All of these other super giant games were selling like crazy. And they could put the time and attention in to, like, make that thing like go insanely like hardcore platinum, right? The thing that the thing that describes a good indie game publisher is their ability to like live in the live with those base hits. And if you were a YouTuber who was in fact dedicated to bringing these indie games to your audience, right? To uplifting the truly great indie games, you would not be choosing the 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 super gigantic smash hit indies that everyone knows about and everyone is playing on all of their channels, right? You did not introduce Undertale to fucking anybody because everybody was playing Undertale. It was this huge phenomenon. We all knew about Undertale, right? If you're if you're a YouTuber who cares about indie games, you're going to be finding stuff that no one is playing, that no one is talking about, and saying, "Hey, I saw this demo in Steam Next Fest, and it's something special." And it's not even like there aren't 
aren't YouTubers who do that. I know that there are YouTubers who do that because part of my job is finding them and getting them our titles so that they can show their audience and go, hey, you know what? Absolute Tactics is a really classic, you know, tactics RPG experience. If you're really just hankering for a good old fashioned, you know, tactics RPG that doesn't hold your hand, that's actually pretty difficult in places, right? That that asks you to make complex decisions about movement and placing throughout the game world or whatever. You should try out Absolute Tactics. I have plenty of YouTubers who were willing to to say that about, about Absolute Tactics. Donkey wasn't because he doesn't play games like that, right? Like, because he doesn't actually care about about indie games on that sort of on that sort of level. And it's just like, oh... I don't know why this is like put such a like this has been stuck in my craw for me. Hey, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, and you know what? You know what it's like. You know what it's like. It's like it's like saying it's like being imagine being a film YouTuber, right? Being a film YouTuber and saying I'm making a production company. Okay, I'm I'm making a production company and we're gonna make the best movies out there. Movies like The Avengers. <laughs> movies like Captain America. You know, movies like Star Wars. You know, it's just like, uh, no, of course, uh, of course, you're not going to do those things. You're not going to do those things. That's not how this works. That's like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, anyway, <laughs> and, and I, I, I don't mean to. I don't want to denigrate uh, small publishers, but like, truly, get great, great games don't need the publisher as much because they kind of like stand on. True. Yeah, they, they stand on their own feet, right? Like, and like again, this is not to denigrate any of the titles over at Aquapara, but like a game with more niche appeal, something like a Grime, right? Like a Grime is like mm-hmm. a a Souls Metroidvania, unique in that kind of regard. But like, it's like like it is like Hollow Knight in that regard. But like, it is for people who want something a little bit something extra, right? Like they or they want something in that genre because they've already played Hollow Knight to death or whatever, right? Like they've played the, the giants of the genre, they've played like the mainstream versions of it. And a publisher surfaces those more niche titles and those like less blockbuster titles to an audience that appreciates them, right? Um, and so yes, like you know, like that's 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 the thing, right? Like like the blockbuster hits don't need a, a like at that point the publisher all the publisher is doing is like, you know, taking a cut and maybe like doing advertising. Like I, I wonder, like I wonder if there is a title that wouldn't have been like a a truly you know, kind of like blockbuster title that wouldn't have been a blockbuster without the the publisher. And oh, that is, that is first of all that is true, and second of all, that is it is the other aspect that Donkey is insane about, right? Which is that look when when any of us are signing titles, you know, like hindsight is twenty twenty essentially, right. right? When any of us are signing titles, we're looking at them for kind of best case scenario, worst case scenarios, right? When I when I looked at something like a cardboard kings, for instance, right? Nowhere in my in like in that in that alpha was most of those games of that game's mechanics. You had a vertical slice to go off of, right? And the challenge for a developer in that scenario, they're going out for publishing, right? They probably are in development. They have an alpha. They have something playable, a demo. A demo. And the point of the demo is to simultaneously encapsulate the experience of what playing that game is going to be like while also suggesting what the rest of that game is going to be like, right? So, for instance, and I've I've done a million of these feedback rounds, by the way. It's very common for me to get a demo and see, oh, I see what this indie game is doing. 
I'm just gonna use a hypothetical example because I don't want to shit on anybody that's like that's like real, right? Let's say I, it's a tactics RPG, right? But it's a tactics RPG that has a you know a little mini game that you play in inside of any any of your rounds, right? So you select a character and maybe you play a mini game in the vein of like fishing in Stardew Valley, right? Like a little 20 second little mini game. You solve a little puzzle and your ability to solve the puzzle depends whether or not your attack hits or hits or misses, right? There are a lot of games that are like that, where it is like, oh, here's a familiar thing you know, and here is a little remixed mechanical detail on top of it. And I, and I turn those down. And the reason why is because you figure that mechanic out in five fucking seconds and you're like, this is if this is all the game is there's nothing else here right I, you could make this game 20 more hours of content and i wouldn't want to play another instance of it because the mechanic like the remixed mechanic is so simple that it was displayed to me in the demo and i it has nowhere to go right you're not showing me the the, the sort of breadth and that's a tough thing to land right that's like a really tough thing to land whereas something like astrea for instance we had a really spectacular demo and it's because even though Australia only had one playable character with one set of like dice that I was able to use in order to do this roguelike experience and only a couple of enemies, right? Like only a handful of enemies, right? Immediately I could understand, oh, I see how different characters would would interact with this world, right? Well, how I could find replayability by adding new enemies who have different abilities that are going to change the way that I'm going to approach this thing. It had it suggested into the possibility space, right, of the game that it could be, but I only saw that little vertical slice, right? And this, is, and this is what you get when you're an indie game publisher. You get that vertical slice, and you have to make the decision based on that vertical slice. And also stuff like, you know, like a like you, you get a design document, you get a pitch deck, right? You know, you get some other stuff in there just to, just so that the developer can show you. Maybe they'll, they'll take you down in a meeting, and they will give you their full hour-long pitch where they talk about, and here's what we're doing next in development, and what, what kinds of systems we're adding, what kind of features that we're, that we're adding. And I guarantee you that it is impossible to tell which games are going to be those smash out breakaway super insane hits based on a vertical slice like that right it is just impossible and the reason i know that it's fucking impossible is because if it were possible people would be doing it people would be we would only sign the good games right like this is ha what half of the twitter discourse was like it was like oh wow donkey really really like cracked the code there all you had to do was sign undertale it's like well yeah but like you needed to you, like you needed to you need to be able to see the possibility space and then also the developer has to actually execute on the possibility space in order to in order to like get there and that's so rare no one can do that if that existed, if, if that was easy enough to do, then the big publishers would be signing the indies because they'd be like guaranteed revenue, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> and it's like, and and there's so many other pieces of like of that kind of puzzle that are so intricate, and like in that stupid, dumbass, dipshit announcement video, he didn't he didn't explain like none of that existed basically which is not to say i don't think donkey has bad intentions i believe him when he says that he cares about games and i believe yep. him when he says i want to make the, the you know i want to publish the best games right out there sure okay fair enough i i'm i'm on i'm on board i'm on board with that um but it's just you know the it's just the naivety of it destroys me like yep. I, it's <laughs> i could see it Maybe working out in the way that, like, because, like, indie publishers work, like, Dunkey seems to me like he wants to do indie games like VCs. 
And like, so in like in in the um, uh, venture capital world, right? The way that this works is companies will make a bunch of bets and only expect like one to pay off, right? But they want that mm-hmm. one to really pay off, right? Like they are in effect looking for the next Undertale, and they don't mind si- signing like seventy-two, like you know, like you know, hentai puzzler four in the in the process, right? But that's not really the indie publisher model right now, right? Like, uh, it doesn't sound like what Dunkey says he wants, but that's the way I could see it working out. It's like, he just, because he's a successful enough YouTuber that he has enough capital, they can just throw money at these pet projects that he finds, that he happens to like strike gold with one. And that works out and he makes his money back on that. Like, I could see that working, but that's also not what he's claiming. But that's like the only way I could see this type of model working out. I also think that, you know, exposure is huge, yeah. right? Honestly, like, look, if I'm an indie developer and I'm thinking about submitting to publishers, I'm submitting to big mode games, obviously, right? Because the chance, like, what I would not fucking do to have Donkey play Absolute Tactics, right? Like, holy fuck, I would give my left nut to have Donkey play some of the Akupara games just because it is so hard to penetrate, you know, like, and get exposure. And this guy has two million YouTube subs, right? right? You know, like, if I could get whoever, PewDiePie, Markiplier, Donkey to play some of these, to play some of our titles. That's insanely valuable. Insanely valuable, right? And maybe, though, actually, to be fair, not as valuable as me, as, as, as you might think and in, and in different sorts of ways. Influencers are, 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 are weird and crazy, but whatever the case may be. Um, maybe that maybe that's the reason, right? Like, you guarantee a certain level of yeah, exposure. But, but that like, way. that's also kind of like, I, I think... People are not dumb, and like the moment he starts playing the games from his publishing house, people aren't going to take it as, a, as as like you know like a an authentic opinion, right? Like, yep. Like, it, yeah. I, 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 yeah. Well, because like this is one of the things that we learned: organic organic influencers pay off, right? Like, or if if somebody organically picks up your game, that'll convert to sales. If you pay an influencer to play your game, no, never, not not once, right? Like. It just the moment people sense it is an ad that they are being advertised to and that there's the streamer is, you know, being paid for their time, they're, you know, like they're out of it. And maybe you can get away with it on an exposure level. This is something I've heard before. I don't believe it, but whatever. I've heard agencies say, um, honestly, well, I won't say who. A friend of the cast has has told me on an agency level um, that it pays off not in terms of the direct sales, right? It's not like me getting whoever, you know, to play. Like it's not like it's not like me getting Markiplier. Let's say let's say I, I pay Markiplier to pay my game um, is going to is going to get sales because. Mark is going to translate sales to his audience, right? Kids who are watching the Markiplier YouTube channel are not going and picking up the game necessarily because they sense that it's an ad. They're not going to do that thing or whatever, right? But getting a huge, you know, like dynamite YouTuber to play your game um, ups your exposure in the algorithm and like makes it such that your game becomes a, a thing that is bigger than itself where you can generate like powerful organic traffic so, such that if you are the type of person who would play, you know, who would play whatever this game is, right? Um, because the fact that there's a Markiplier video with 2 million views on it or whatever the number would be, right? It is easy for that game to be put in front of a player who is saying, okay, I want to play a new game on Steam. What is it? 
right? You know, that maybe you could make that argument, right? But I just feel like no one ever, ever in a million years buys a game because of an ad influencer. And that's exactly what's going to happen with Dunkey, right? On top of the ethical considerations of just like, you know, like Dunkey essentially reviewing his own games on his own like YouTube channel, right? Like ha- having having a, a weird set of ethics. Yeah, I mean, in that. He, he can't really review them, right? Like he can be like, you know, like this is a game I'm publishing. Like you know, like yeah, like Paradox puts out videos about Victoria, right? But I understand mm-hmm. that that's like the developer putting out putting out the video, right? Um, and similarly, Dunkey could be like, this is a game I'm publishing and I'm going to play it. But he can't really – and be like, you know, like, I think these features are cool or whatever. But he can't really be like – unless they give it a 10 out of 10, right? Like, he has to be like, you know, this is a game I'm publishing. Check it out because I think it's cool. Like, you know, and I think it's, you know, a good game. Otherwise, I wouldn't publish it, I guess. But, like, you know, that's like – like, there's a way to be honest about it. It's just, like, hard, right? Like, um, and I think he could do it. But, like, I also don't know, like – I don't know. I also don't think Dunkey's a particularly valuable reviewer. So, you know, maybe that's safe. I also, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I, I watch a lot of Dunkey stuff, obviously. I think he's funny, but I don't know. Uh, You said this thing off the cast where, like, when Dunkey gets serious, he's not good. And I sort of feel that way. I don't think he's particularly profound or insightful. When he started doing more serious content, that's when I dropped the channel because I was like, I don't I don't care. Um, and also, like, he has a tendency, like, this is the thing that personally irks me is, like, when people start to push back at some of, on, on him on some of his stuff, sometimes he does the kind of, like, oh, I'm this was a comedy bit, right? Like, like because he mixes the content, like, the the big one for this was, um, uh, well, it was, like, the, it was, it was like, the, um, the, the Shadow of the Colossus people did, like, the, the game with, like, the, oh, the Griffin. The, the Last Guardian? Yeah, The Last Guardian, thank you. And he, like was, like, kind of clowning on the game at certain parts, but he was, like, intentionally playing it bad for, like, comedic effect. But, like, it was in the frame of where it could have been, like, a serious, like, like uh, a, like, not serious, because it's, like, a comedy, but, like, you know, like, he was, it might have been played as if he was doing a serious, like, identifying this as a serious problem with the game. Um, and, like, the fact that he mixes that content just, like, rubs me the wrong way, because it's, like, hard to know when he's doing what. Um, and uh, I don't find that particularly valuable, so... You know, Dunky is the worst possible person for this. To be honest, says the chat. <laughs> Dunky is well, only funny, funny he's when he's ragging yeah, on shit. No, that's 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 true, right? Like you know, um, but that's like that's like the style of, of of comedy, right? Like being positive is generally not funny, and that's fine. But like, like it was between like you know, like zero punctuation. Even when he likes a game, he has to shit on it because like that's what the the format is, right? Like, um, yeah. And he recognizes that, and he, like, will say at, like, the end of his, like, ranty videos, be like, and I like this game, but I did a bunch of nitpicky stuff, because, like, that's what this format is. Like, he did in, like, the last video he put out, right? Um, and, like, I don't go to zero punctuation for, like, a an actual evaluation of a game. I go to it because it's funny, right? Like, um, uh... <laughs> This chat is really good. Donkey voice. Hey, look at this piece of shit I'm producing. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, that's that's true. That is sort of what he's like. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I also just think that there has not been a great track record of this. I. Show me a YouTuber who has produced a, like, a a movie that's good. Like, 
I mean, Patrick H. Willems, maybe. I haven't even seen Night of the Coconut yet, but I liked a lot of his other stuff, and I think, like, maybe he's the only one, but, like, who the fuck is going to look at the thinning from Logan Paul or whatever and say, like, oh, yeah, because this guy was good at YouTube, he started making movies good. I mean, it's like, hey, so, like, classically, Red Letter Media, who do these, who do great content about bad B-movies, yeah. right? Try to intentionally make a bad B-movie, and... Space Cop isn't is, is not is a failure on both of those metrics, and they're open about that. But like, it's it's a hard thing to do, right? Like, or like, I don't know, with video game, video game producers specifically, the thing that immediately pops in my mind is Kurt Schilling, right? And um, what was the name yep. of that game? Oh God, the Kingdoms of Amalur. Yeah, Kingdoms right? of Amalur Reckoning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which is a weird game that actually has something of a fan base. Funnily enough, uh, uh, I I have a friend who like goes really fucking hard for that game but like that whole studio is like yeah. run into the ground right like he spent 100 million dollars i think of rhode island's money or something yeah like he it was went like to a, rhode island there was like a tax incentive that like he basically like wrote it for all it's worth and nothing worked out and then he like you know it shuttered and he, i think he they went after him but i don't i don't remember yeah. the, the details there and like and, I, and there are other youtubers who have made video games right like the angry video game nerd made a video game which i i don't want to talk too much about that obviously um but like you know it's just like i i the 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 skills that go into being a critic do not necessarily translate into the skills that go into being a great producer of the thing you are critiquing right yeah um and and especially especially with games which is like there's a lot of like technical knowledge that like you really don't need in order to make like a criticism oh yeah Oh yeah, well I mean people t- people ra- I feel like we need to do a whole episode on this. People need to do we're 20 minutes over, right? Like yeah. people people do uh do like rag on uh idea guys, right? Yeah. You know, people people will talk about, "Oh, I I I'm an ideas guy." It's like, dude, it doesn't exist. Like games like it just doesn't fucking exist. It's, and and game dev Twitter is always getting on people's uh, getting on people about that. I in my in my professional capacity as a as an you know, a community manager for an indie game publisher have had to tell a million people who PM me on Discord, oh, I have a great idea for a game. I just need someone to help me develop it. It's like, buddy, no. I'm like, that, I'm sorry. That right? dollar will <laughs> get you a pack of gum, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? You know, like, it's that's just, like, not interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, not impressive. You're not showing me the skill set. This, this, is, this, is, uh, this is less common now, but this was for a very long time. Like, there was a whole site called, like, you know, Wharton Student Seeks Programmer, right? Or Wharton MBA Seeks Programmer, right? It's, like, this happens outside <laughs> of the video game world, too, right? Like, as somebody who is, who is a technical person outside the video game world, it's, like, you know, I have this great idea. I just need you to go build it. Is like a okay, thanks, right? Like you know, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, because especially, and this is the, this is the thing that maybe people don't necessarily see is um, is how much indies, like how me, how much indie games are a place for people to. It's it's sort of a release valve, I want to say, for like the AAA games industry, right? Like, Absolute Text is a great example of this. Jason works on he's worked at Gearbox for the last fifteen years. He still works there, right? And he basically made this whole game in his free time. And you're going to tell me, right, like, let's say, let's say I'm a hypothetical idea guy, right? You're going to tell me that you're going to come at me, even if even if you come out of, like, let's say you come out of school, you have a prototype, you have some sort of vertical slice that you can actually make a pitch with, right? Which not every game school, like, that's not a guarantee, right? Even if you could make me that pitch, right, why on earth would I ever take your game over absolute tactics which is developed by a guy who has 15 years game development experience under his belt you know and and like 
it's basically every pitch I ever see for indie game development is either I am a mobile game developer who wants to break into, you know, like PCs or console or something, right? Like I want to get out of the mobile game space and I want to start making games for, you know, traditional traditional game consoles and and PC, right? Or I am a AAA developer who is you know, like getting away from whatever the stress of corporate, whatever. Right. And I'm making my own thing with like two of my friends. And we just, we, we just left square Enix after t- putting 10 years there. Right. And we're making a game. Again. It's like when, when every single pitch that most game publishers are going to be seeing is a pitch like that. It's just like, you're never going to get anywhere with the I'm an ideas oh, guy yeah, like, kind of kind of thing. And, like, I don't know how much you see this or, like, how much they go out to publishers, but I definitely know a lot of people that are, like, you know, I work in big tech and this game is, like, my fun side project, right? And, like, even if I never publish it, it's, like, you know, it's a thing I will build in my spare time. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That, that, that sort of thing happens all the time, right? Um, and so, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, that was a good end of <laughs> end of show rant, but I do think we should should wrap it up. Um, if you'd like to email us any of the things that we talked about, uh, or email us your thoughts on any things we talked about on this podcast, you can email us at gmail.com or You can follow us on twitch.tv slash games where these go out live. We've got a YouTube, we've got a Patreon, uh, we've got a SoundCloud, we're on every podcast distribution service. Please leave us a, a rating, I guess, especially on iTunes is the big one. Um, follow us on Twitch, I guess. Um, but that's everything I have. But do you have anything you're looking to promote? Uh, is there anything I'm looking to promote? Go play Absolute Tactics, I guess. Yeah, uh, go go play Absolute Tactics. Absolute Tactics has been out for two weeks. Uh, we've actually been, been patching the game pretty pretty vigorously, which is nice. You know, one, one, one of the other things that's tough about indie games is, um, you, like, the amount of people that see a game is just so small compared to what you get on launch. So, we've gotten a bunch of people who've said, we want all of this level of feedback and now we're delivering on that stuff, which is which is kind of neat and interesting. Um, so yeah, uh, that's that's my recommendation. Go go play Absolute Tactics. Yeah, I mean, also just you know as a general public service announcement, uh, Action Button put out a new review yesterday, which I haven't watched <gasps> yet. We didn't even like, talk about that. Fuck, I was going to talk about. Did you it watch too. it? Oh, God, uh, I watched the first four hours. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I but there, oh, there's a lot in there that I want to talk about. Oh, well, my we'll God. talk about it next anyway, week. Whatever. Right? Yeah. All right. Until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.